A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. It's December 1971 in Westfield, New Jersey. Nixon's president, John and Yoko, have just released their Christmas hit, War is Over. And the holiday shopping season is taking shape in Westfield's bustling, Mayberry-like downtown. When it comes to Union County, Westfield's a jewel in the crown. Upscale and safe, with beautiful Victorian homes, top-tier schools, friendly neighbors, and an easy commute into Manhattan. And that hasn't changed in 50 years. If you've got a house in Westfield in 1971, or today, you've pretty much made it. Here's former Westfield Police Chief Barney Tracy. Well, Westfield certainly had that air about it. People would take on car rides, and streets had, you know, were known to have these mansions, almost like if you were going on a tour of Beverly Hills, I guess, if you lived in California. But that's how in Union County people looked at Westfield. But in one of those beautiful Victorian homes set on top of a hill, in this town where everyone wants to live and nothing ever happens, December 7th, 1971, brought a jaw-dropping discovery. Attorney Michael Mitzner was in his mid-20s and an assistant prosecutor when he got called to a crime scene that he'd never forget. I was not actually on that night, but they couldn't reach the on-prosecutor, and I was actually at a drive-in movie, which still existed back in those days, with my wife and my kids, and I got the call and uh, had to leave there drop them off at home, and then get out to Westfield. He's told to go to Breeznall, a 19-room mansion on the ritzier north side of town. It's stately and imposing, white with black shutters, and set back from the road, far enough from other neighbors that you might not hear gunshots inside. When he gets there, Mitzner's struck by what he sees in the faces of the officers already on the scene. There's some veteran police officers there, and you could see that they were shaken up by what they were saying. As officers entered the mansion that night, it was Hitchcock-level creepy. The thermostat had been turned way down, letting in the December chill, and church-sounding music played over an intercom in every room. And, yeah, the house was kind of an eerie house anyway, because it was very sparsely uh, furnished. Um, and there were a lot of, uh, like in that room, was almost completely empty, if I remember correctly. The room Mitzner's talking about is the ballroom. Yes, Breeze Knoll had a ballroom among its 19 rooms. Officers followed the dark streaks smeared across the home's worn wooden floors, leading to the spot in the ballroom where four bodies were laid on sleeping bags, like a campout gone horribly wrong drag marks where they had been put in sleeping bags and dragged uh, into the, and seeing that there were, three of them were kids, it was nothing like anything I had ever seen before. The officers' flashlights illuminated the bodies of four of the home's residents, Helen List and her three children, 16-year-old Patty, 15-year-old John Jr., and Fred, who was just 13. Helen was laid out with the skirt of her dress lifted up, revealing her legs and undergarments, her arms outstretched over her head. 
her three children were more tenderly placed on sleeping bags, perpendicular to their mother's body. And like his mother, John Jr.'s face was covered with a towel. If it weren't for the blood, you might have thought they were asleep, except that the children were all still dressed in their winter coats and shoes. And as the shock of that crime scene settled in, an officer found another body in the apartment upstairs. Alma List, the children's grandmother, in her floral dress and apron, on her back on the parquet floor. There was only one member of the List family they didn't find. The father, John Emil List. In fact, he would prove much harder to find than anyone could have imagined. For NJ.com and the Star Ledger, I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. This is Father Wants Us Dead, the story of John List, the mass murderer who defies all expectations, and a crime so calculating and incomprehensible that it changed everything in this quiet suburb where things like this just don't happen. Rebecca, you'd never look twice at John List. He seemed like your average, dutiful dad. Right, heading off to work every day, helping out at Boy Scouts, teaching Sunday school at church. How did that guy turn into an executioner? How did he go from a reserved accountant to being known as the boogeyman of Westfield? And now, 50 years later, that's what we're trying to answer. In this podcast, Jess and I will tell you more about how that beautiful house on a hill turned into a makeshift morgue how John List went about his meticulous plan, and why no one in Westfield could get a good night's sleep in the weeks that followed. This is a story about pride and pain, about a monster hiding in plain sight, about the lengths people will go to keep up with the Joneses, and whether you can ever really know your neighbors. It's not just that this crime blew the collective minds of everyone here and changed the landscape of this place. It's that this was basically New Jersey's version of the Manson killings. It played right into the times and people's fears and was one of the first widespread stories of something rotten in the suburbs, of a darkness amid perceived safety and stability. When the list murders made national news, it was proof that unthinkable crimes can happen anywhere, no matter how expensive the real estate or how ordinary the perpetrator might seem. Besides, this was the 70s. The changing culture, the beginnings of heavy metal music, even The Exorcist coming out, had people afraid that the fabric of society was crumbling and everything was going to hell. And then you have a quiet neighbor slaughter his family and arrange their bodies in a ritualistic display, a real-life villain in a horror movie. And after murdering his whole family, he disappears, biding his time until he might kill again. And as our new reporting has uncovered, the reality of what happened 50 years ago is even more chilling than what people imagined. It took a whole month for the bodies to be found in the ballroom. Robert Kenny was one of the Westfield police officers on the scene that night in 1971. He now lives in North Carolina and has been retired for years, but he can still describe the scene exactly. 
Okay, when I walked in, I saw the bodies by the fireplace in the ballroom. Had you ever seen anything like that where someone would, I don't know, lay people out on sleeping bags? Well, you know, after 28 years as a police officer and 14 in investigations, you see everything, but this was unique. And here's Michael Mitzner, the assistant prosecutor on scene, who also can't forget what he saw that night or what he smelled. Yeah, he can talk about a smell of death. Now, it was the winter, and he had turned off all the heat, so the bodies were in much better shape than they would normally have been after the, the month or so that they were there. But still, there was a, a strange odor. I, so much so, when I got home from there, I was living in a garden apartment. I took my clothes off in the hallway and left them there. Uh, I wouldn't even bring them into my apartment. So, Jess, I think we've got over 25 years between us reporting on crime and mayhem and all that stuff. And we've covered some really gruesome stuff. But for me, this crime stands out. It's just impossible to forget. Not just the killing of the five people closest to him, but the detailed planning, the way List lines them up on sleeping bags. And it's not just us. When we talk to people in law enforcement, people who've seen plenty of atrocities, they still have a visceral reaction to the List murders five decades later. And John List's disappearance really aided them, too. If there was ever a crime Westfield police wanted to solve, it was getting the guy who took out his whole family. We heard stories about the police chief there, carrying around the wanted poster in his pocket for years, hoping he'd be the one to bring him in. And then there's just this juxtaposition of what John List did and how he seemed so prim and proper. I mean, we heard from people that he even wore formal attire while doing yard work. Here's part of our interview with a Westfield neighbor, Dave Devlin. He would mow his whole lawn in his, in his suit. It's like, who does that? <laughs> you know? I feel like it's these little idiosyncrasies, these odd little anecdotes like that, that just made us really want to dig into the story even more, Just To really understand this guy and all the characters in this story. And I can just imagine how many questions people had after this awful discovery 50 years ago. Including the biggest question of all. Where had John List gone? It would take another 18 years to answer. 2021 marked the 50th anniversary of List executing his whole family. Jess and I have spent more than a year revisiting the case, which was the single most horrific event to ever happen in the quiet suburb of Westfield. It's been studied and written about and replayed in TV specials. But the thing we discovered? People really don't know the whole story. It turns out to be so much stranger, so much darker, and so much sadder than what has ever been recounted. How could a father do this to his family? What was wrong with this guy? And would he get away with it? This is a podcast for those who don't know anything about the List murders, and also for you true crime junkies who most definitely do. Over the course of our reporting, we dove deep, interviewing dozens of people from law enforcement to psychologists to some of the List family's closest friends. We'll walk you through the never-before-released case files that we managed to get. You'll hear from people close to the List family who previously haven't spoken about the case. 
and we'll take you on our journey following John List's next steps while answering some of the thorniest questions. We even traveled to one of the places where John List started a new life, and we knocked on the door of his second wife, who, by the way, had absolutely no idea who he really was when she married him and wouldn't find out until an unexpected visitor showed up to her home years later. What people don't realize about reporters is that while every TV show depicts us driving around, chasing down cops, we actually spend most of our time on the phone. And sometimes being that removed risks us becoming desensitized to the devastation or the reality of a crime. So we went to downtown Westfield to get a better sense of how the list murders, even today, hang over the town. So what was the news in Westfield that you would cover here? Uh, not much, because <laughs> there's really not much crime in Westfield at all. So I, we were rarely reporting in Westfield when I covered Union County. I do remember my first day as a supervisor, a bear wandered through downtown. That was a whole thing. I was chasing a bear and, um, you know, people were very excited about that. It did finally wander back up into the woods. No big deal. Uh, and the Watcher House. A lot of people have heard of that. That was a family that moved into a beautiful house. They start getting these creepy letters from somebody claiming to be the watcher of the house and thanking them for bringing their children as new young blood into the house. Super spooky. Yeah, it was like made for, uh, it's just horror story-esque. If you bring up the name John List in Westfield, People know exactly what you're talking about. Right, and, and Jess, you know I'm from Massachusetts, so I hadn't heard of the John List case until I moved here. And it was, you know, it was one of the most horrible stories I'd ever heard. Yeah, I mean, there is an entire generation. If you lived in Union County in the 70s, you absolutely knew the story. You know where you were when you heard it. If you were a teenager, you would drive by the List house to spook one another. And, you know, young kids worried that John List was hiding under their bed. He was still out there. So, yes, there's a whole group of people that, um, you know, were haunted by this case. Um, but yeah, this is Fairview. Pretty um, fancy for a cemetery, I guess. Yeah, and pretty locked down and strict and um, I think kind of not keen on us probably poking around here. But creeping around mm. all night. Okay. Guess we get out. The list headstone is inscribed with there is peace in the eternal valley, and the names of four people, Helen, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. John List's other victim, his mother Alma, was buried in Michigan, where she was born. The headstone sits right along the roadside, but you'd be hard-pressed to find it if you weren't really looking. I wonder how often people come visit, but, you know, people who loved the Lists or people who, you know, just felt the loss from being part of the community. Seeing it in person suddenly makes the case more real. Yeah, we're literally standing above their final resting place. You know, it's hard for me, the, the, after seeing the crime scene photos, like that's what I think of 
and I guess it is a nice juxtaposition to see how beautiful and peaceful it is here and to try and think of them, you know, being at peace. But we're not going to find what we want to know in a cemetery. To really know the victims, the lives they led, the things they loved. We spoke to over a dozen people who knew the list kids well, especially Patty. We'll get to know all these friends better in later episodes when they'll tell us more about what the whole family was like. What they observed in the final months the lists were alive. And even some ominous comments Patty made about her father. But first, let's talk about Helen and Alma List. Friends of the List kids said Helen was as warm and friendly as John List was cold. But her health was bad for years, so they rarely saw her out of bed. And Alma was John List's mother, who had come to live with them in the mansion and even help with the down payment. Like him, she was a strict Lutheran, and she was friendly with people at church. One neighbor said she was the only member of the family who could be described as social, sometimes bringing them cookies and chatting about her grandkids. The oldest of the three children was Patricia. Her friends called her Pat or Patty. She was 16 and a junior at Westfield High School when she died. She was an aspiring actress in the town's drama club and a good student. We were able to talk to several really close friends of Patty's, and you'll hear from a few of them here. Let's start with our interview with Ed Saradaki, Patty's good friend from her drama group. It's a beautiful day on the porch of his home in Scotch Plains, a town next to Westfield. Now peanuts get involved. <laughs> Saradaki's dog, a Chihuahua Terrier named Peanut, tries desperately to join our interview from behind the screen door. Ed said he was two years older than Patty, and they had a kind of big brother-little sister relationship. His eyes light up when he describes her. He said she was a dreamer and kind of wistful. You know the song, The Girl with the Flowers in Her Hair, is the lyric? The, the old hippie song, I can't remember what it is, but that was Patty, long brown hair. Um, hazel green eyes, and you know, you you picture a girl with flowers in her hair running through the running through, running through the field in a miniskirt. That was Patty. She was figuring herself out, her friends said, and well, becoming a bit of a rebel, if only in the way all teenagers test the limits. She was 15, I guess, when I met her. Um, she was just starting to feel her oats and rebel against the constraints that were placed on her. Patty was feeling her way through the world. She was very naive, um, and I guess um, that's what drew me to her, was because she was simple, easy to understand, honest, and just really sweet. Really, really sweet. Do you ever think about what you would say to her? What you, you know? I'd tell her I love her again, and she'd know what that meant. And then there's Susan Cousins Jankowitz, who was friends with Patty basically her whole time in Westfield, starting in elementary school at Redeemer Lutheran. She said she thinks about Patty every time she hits a milestone in her life, like when she turned 21 or when she got married. When we talked, she painted a picture of an easy friendship, a shared love of music, and hours spent together playing guitar and singing in Breeze Knoll's ballroom. Um, you know, with that ballroom, I mean, Rebecca, for, for me, it was like, this is Hollywood, you know, so you're, you're a teenager, you play a musical instrument, and the two of us would sit in the ballroom for hours and just play guitar, and the acoustics were just amazing. 
The middle child was John Jr. Friends said he was tall for his age, shy, and a little nerdy, like his younger brother, Fred. We spoke with Charlie Jones, who was John Jr.'s classmate and close friend. He told us they played soccer together, ate lunch together, and hung out after school. I mean, I remember it well, and I remember John and and Mr. List really well, and I remember playing at their house uh, really well, because it was just a weird spot. Charlie also remembers Fred. He was only 13, so a few years younger, but he played with his older brother and Charlie, and they were all in Boy Scouts together. Charlie said Fred was a nice kid, basically an even quieter mini version of his big brother. They stuck together. Uh, I think Fred was John's best friend and John was Fred's best friend. For everyone who knew and loved the List family, the news of their horrific deaths was unbelievable. For some, it would be life-changing, like Chris Day. He dated Patty and told us how he learned what had happened to his love interest. He looked at the front page of the newspaper on his kitchen table and saw her face looking back at him. I didn't cry until the funeral. There were five caskets, and I was trying to figure out which one's Pat's. Uh, and a lady was brought up, crying her eyeballs out. And when anybody ever cries, it has that uh, domino effect. And the really hard part came after the service. Our team got up. And I was in the lead. Then I went down the aisle, there were guys patting me on the back. Hey. Oh, uh, yeah. And we waited. Then we could hear the casket rolling down. The hearse, the door was open. Directors leading the way and we put that casket in the back and I just lost it right there. Yeah, like you were letting her go. It was terrible. That's all I can say. It was very most one of the most terrible, darkest days of my life. It was that funeral. We're going to get into exactly what happened once the list kids walked into their home that fateful day and how their bodies came to rest on sleeping bags in the ballroom. But before we do, Jess, let's state the obvious. This case actually isn't a whodunit at all. Because what police found that night, Rebecca, was a note John List had scrawled over pages from a yellow legal pad. It was a letter confessing to every single thing. So Jess, we have to talk more about this letter. I mean, who leaves a letter at all? And a confession letter with your name signed at the bottom at that. Why even bother explaining yourself and incriminating yourself? And not only did he confess, but he laid it all down in painstaking detail. And it just feels so absurd how he mixes in these trivialities, like it's just a casual note to his pastor with the absolutely horrible stuff he did, and how he killed them. 
And can you imagine expecting that people would read that letter and go, oh, okay, now I understand. It all makes perfect sense. It's ridiculous. It really is. Also, we need to talk about that very last line because I still cannot believe the nonchalant tone in this postscript that he ends the letter with. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. That still hits me every time. So cold. You know, people have wondered if John List was a psychopath or a sociopath, and this letter, how it's so matter-of-fact, is probably one reason why. That's something we'll dive into in this podcast. What turned this guy into this monster? Was he just evil, or did he have a mental health condition that could have factored into such a ruthless decision? He was just so calculating about what he did. It boggles the mind. I mean, he, he left a letter behind explaining it, but we're still trying to figure it out 50 years later. I asked Michael Mitzner, the assistant prosecutor at the scene, about reading the letter that night in the study in this mansion full of bodies. What stuck out to you? Well, I, how well-planned everything was and how, uh, you know, he, he outlined uh, if I remember correctly, what he had done, and I, I think some lame excuses for why he had done it. What was it like to read something like that? There, I mean, like it's um, it's got to be unusual. Your mind have... is, is how can anybody, uh, as a father, do that to his kids? And not just his kids, his wife, his own mother. Dear Pastor Ray Winkle. I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and that any reasons that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least possibly understand why I felt I had to do this. The letter went on for five pages as List unburdened himself. He killed them because he had to. And then he explained why. Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer. We're going to let you hear more of that letter later in the podcast. It's a key part of understanding why John List did this. But it's not everything. There's more to this story than just what's in this letter. I I think he was trying to, in, in his mind, justify what cannot possibly be justified. Yeah, I mean, he tried to rationalize something that's totally irrational. Yeah, whatever's going on, you don't kill your kids. Yeah, as a as a young father, did that hit you differently? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I went home, first thing I did was go in and see my kids. Make sure they were okay. Make sure that, uh, you know, not that, you know, you expect something like that to happen, but you just, it's a tremendous sense of loss when you see kids like that dead at the hands of their own father. And that didn't just haunt the law enforcement there that night. Here's how Jeffrey Hummel put it. He's a retired detective who worked on the case years after List had disappeared. It's, it's beyond comprehension. I, as a father, three children, 10 grandchildren, three great-grandchildren, could never in my wildest imagination, think of any of hurting anybody, especially my loved ones. So what was wrong with John List? 
I guess you'll have to leave that to the psychiatrist because I don't know. I don't know what kind of monster this was, but it certainly was a monster. On the night of December 7th, 1971, there were several questions on every cop's mind. Where was John List? How long had the bodies been in the house? And if List had fled, how much of a head start did he have? They needed to launch a manhunt, and they'd need a photo. But there were no photos of John List in the house because he tore his image out of each and every one. This was just one of the many meticulous steps John List took as he executed his plan, which we'll tell you more about later in this podcast. John List brutally, systematically, and carefully slaughtered his entire family. And then, he was gone. In our next episode, we'll learn all about John List, a man who failed at so much and yet somehow managed to commit a nearly perfect crime. We'll see what people thought about this odd little family when they arrived in Westfield and learn about the cracks in List's careful facade that were appearing even before that. Patty's father was irate. He just started carrying on yelling at Patty. Again, I never, I can't recall ever seeing him smile. You know, he was just cold. You're half the man my first husband was. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to hear that, male or female. Is there something that I could have done and didn't? And, you know, was just that one ominous comment made by, by Patty within a month of her death. It just, I mean, I told my mom about it, but you just say, oh, okay. We'll follow the case as it twists and turns, with a killer on the loose and all of Westfield on edge. There was one question on their minds. Where was John List? Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advanced Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music, and Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malock. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story, including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.